Hi, good morning, everybody. David mentioned to me that he was going to have some words like that reflected on Steve. And um, I just want to say, as I was thinking about it, Steve was a lot of things to a lot of people in different roles. And one of them that I think of a lot is as a, um, boy, it's, it's harder than I thought it was going to be, <laughs> is um, a coach. He, he was a coach. And um, good coaches encourage their players. Good coaches teach them new things. Good coaches remind them of the basics, going back to the basics, right? Um, and good coaches try to help their players win. And um, I just think it's, I know we have a lot of books that we're covering that are ones that Paul wrote, but Paul was a coach, and that's what Paul wanted. And so I just was thinking about that, um, just thinking of Steve in that way, and Paul, like, being firm in what he's writing, but also being gentle and wanting the best for who he's writing to. So anyway, just a thought. Um, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Um, thank you for wanting the best for us, for wanting the best for all people, Lord. Um, thank you as we, that we have this opportunity to explore 1 Corinthians today and um, just help us to hear what you want each of us individually to hear um, through your word. And uh, we praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, again, we're hitting 1 Corinthians in our series. And I want to remind you all that part of the purpose of this time is we want to talk about, one of the purposes is to build our biblical literacy. And so I just wanted to mention that this book uh, was written less than 30 years from the time that Jesus was crucified uh, and died and was resurrected. And, you know, often one of the criticisms of the Bible is that, oh, uh, well, those things were written down so far after events happened that they're not really credible. We can't trust them. But in the scope of written history, 30 years is not a long period of time. In fact, like many historical um, classics, if you want to call that, weren't written down until hundreds of years after um, they had been told or had happened. I also want to say that 30 years is not long in the scope of a person's lifetime either. So for you young people out there, it's not long. So I'm very optimistic that um, and hopeful today as we look at this book that uh, when we finish, you're going to see a purpose, 1 Corinthians, that you might not have seen before and that you're going to be encouraged to respond in faith and obedience to it. So uh, we're going to get started with 1 Corinthians 13. Now, there are several passages of this book, this being one of them, that are largely accepted and I would say kind of idealized in our culture even today. And this is a classic, right? And I brought with me, I call this a micro prop, right? So he always had his prop. So this is a pillow that Michelle and I were given for our anniversary. We just had our 30th wedding anniversary a couple weeks ago. I was hoping for that. Thank you. <laughs> um, so it says, love is patient, love is kind. I won't read the whole thing, I promise. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps 
no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. It goes on from there. And while my sister gave this to us as a gift, it might surprise you, this pillow was not just made for Michelle and I. There, there's a hunger for this kind of love out there, and that's why that, that verse is read at so many weddings, right? Because that is, there's this ideal of what love would be like. So that's a well-known passage from, from this book. Now, a couple weeks ago, probably right after we got the pillow, right around the same time, Michelle and our family, we had to go to a, a funeral for her aunt. And we're there in the midst of the funeral, and boom, here we see this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, the one about death is swallowed up in victory. And while there's not as big a demand for 1 Corinthians 15 pillows as there are for 1 Corinthians 13 pillows, still there's this appeal to that text. And although the, the specifics of I mean, that phrase, everybody loves that one, death is swallowed up by victory, up in victory. As you get into the text further, of course, if you really read it, it's talking about victory and death for believers, right? And it puts that connection there between believing in Christ and what Christ has done for us and being able to be saved by Christ. Now, for a lot of people, that either somehow I think gets glossed over or they're just blind to all the all that's in that text but again this is this is um, there's this connection with this book with a lot of people now with that said um, actually makes me think who is this book written to and it says in the very beginning of the, of the letter and you'll see I'll go back and forth between book and letter but um, in the beginning of this letter it said this was he was writing to those who were sanctified in Christ Jesus saints by calling with all who in every place and upon the name of the i'm sorry in every place call upon the name of the lord jesus christ their lord and ours and so who was he writing to he's writing to the believers in corinth but it he goes one more to say it's he's writing to all who in every place call upon the name of the lord and so that's to that was it was written to future believers which would include us Today, we're not going to delve into 1 Corinthians 13 or 15 or any other specific real passage because there's, there's a lot in there that we can pull. But instead, what I want to look at today are we're going to start with two foundational reminders to the church and then two applications that we see throughout the text. These are things that Paul did not want us to forget, and he didn't want the church there to forget either. The first of these is recognizing what God has done for all people, right? So God sent his son. He took the sins of the world upon himself at the cross, humbled himself in that way, and he paid the price for all men and women if we'll just humble ourselves and accept that gift, even though we are the ones who deserve that, that punishment. He assures believers of God's faithfulness. He says, he who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, God is the one who is faithful, right? He's also the initiator. 
he's the one who called those believers and called us into fellowship with his son. And so Paul's optimism for the church that he's writing to is based on God's faithfulness and God's abilities, not on our human abilities or the, hum or the human abilities of those in Corinth. And Paul encourages them to not be smart like the world is smart. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He continues, consider your calling, brethren. He's like, evaluate yourselves. Who are we relying on here? He says, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the things that are that he might nullify the things that no man should boast before God. <clears throat> he continues building this foundation of how God's power alone called them. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of the power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So the second piece of the foundation that he is, wants to talk about is he's identifying the abilities and the standing that all believers possess. Now, why would Paul want to come back and identify these abilities and standing? Perhaps these new believers forgot. Perhaps they never really quite got it, really quite understood. Uh, whichever it was, apparently they just needed to be reminded because they needed to understand who they were in facing these, these new challenges. If you think about it, based on, if you look at the timeline of Paul's journeys and his letters, the oldest of the members of this church in Corinth, unless they came from somewhere else, they were probably less than five years along in their faith. And that, to me, I'm like, wow, I can believe that they didn't remember or understand everything if they had been less than five years in their faith. I mean, if you consider your early days, right, like there are there probably many things that you didn't quite understand about how God viewed you and what he was offering you and the abilities he'd given you as a new believer. So that seems very understandable, but he, again, he has to remind them of this. And here's how he does it in some of the ways, some of the ways he does it. He reminds them um, of some of their abilities. So he says, in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, even as his testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking in any gift. So, okay, first thing, they're not lacking in any gift. Awesome. He goes on, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. So, okay, so we have everything, they have everything, and we've received the spirit of God. Okay, the, we're doing pretty well so far, I'd say. That we've also, it says, all things belong to you, 
and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So not only do you have the Spirit, you have all things, you belong to God. To borrow from some other books, it says in Hebrews, I like how this puts it, we're reminded that he says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at our time of need or the time of need. Also in Romans, he says, reminds him that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also freely give us all things? And lastly, from Romans, he says, but in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Okay, we've got a lot going for us, right? So now that we have this foundation established, he's going to get into the purpose of his letter. And his purpose is he's going to give counsel on a lot of different subjects, but we're going to see an overall purpose and application for the church. One is he wants the church to glorify God. And two, he wants to, the church to remove obstacles to one's being saved. So this counsel is not just a bunch of new rules to follow or old rules repackaged so that we can feel good or feel justified for the things we're able to, oh, I can meet these goals or I can meet these expectations. The counsel was to help this new church to glorify God. All these different things that, that he outlines are so the church can glorify God and remove these obstacles to one's being saved. That's what they want to apply. And I just want to touch on the fact that, you know, these obstacles, I mentioned, I, my term, obstacles, those could be something that we do or those could be something that we don't do. Like we don't want to do things and we don't want to not do things or not say things that will help ones to be saved. So what were some of the issues of their day? One important one was division in the church. We learned that word has gotten back to Paul through Chloe and some of her family or associates that there are divisions in the church. And he says, I exhort you, brethren, that you all agree that you be made complete in the same mind. So what was happening was members were dividing themselves from what we can tell from his letter. They were dividing themselves into, well, oh, this, I was baptized by this person or I was baptized by that person or I identify more with this person's teachings and that person's teachings. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. We've got to cut through all this to get to what's the most important and why he came to them in the first place. He says that he came to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ would not be made of no effect. He did not want his preaching or any preaching to get lost in their divisions, for those divisions to take away from the message getting out. Later he writes in that same letter, he says, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like ordinary men? So he's just basically saying, are you not just like everybody else? He, he wants them to choose to live in light of their standing. He wants them to choose to be united so that the gospel won't get watered down or just totally be unseen by 
those that need to hear it. A second issue of, of the day is sexual immorality in the church. Now, before I talk about this, it's important to set the stage for what Corinth was like. So Corinth was this major uh, trade center. It was a major transportation hub. And it's interesting. It was really like, it was like an older city that had been destroyed. And then it was reestablished. It's really only like reestablished like 50 years before this was written. And because it was at a great crossroads, there were a lot of sailors and, you know, people coming and going. And because there were all these sailors and other people coming and going, they were often coming ready to squander their money at temple brothels. There was a temple of Aphrodite there, which was said to have up to a thousand prostitutes. In fact, the, the city was so sexually charged, if you want to say that, that the term to act like a Corinthian was synonymous with debauchery and prostitution. So with this as a backdrop, we learn that, that within the church there was, Paul says, there was immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles. That's amazing. Think of that. There was sexual immorality that was even worse than what was the ordinary everyday experience of those in the city. And Paul, his call to action is firm and urgent. The action he calls for, which you can read about, I'm just not going to get into the details, but it was very specific, but it was for the purpose of, because he was concerned for the specific brother who was caught in this immorality. He was concerned for the church's health and influence in their city. And he was concerned for the in other individuals in the church. He warns, he says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man commits sin against his own body. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify your body, I'm sorry, glorify God in your body. So how could their church influence the city of their need for a savior if its members were themselves engaged, engaged in or tolerating things that were even worse that, than what was normal in that city? I really love how he, he has this, I call it the beautiful clarification in chapter 5, verse 10, where he says, hey, when I said don't associate with an immoral brother, I didn't mean at all to not associate with immoral people of the world, or you'd have to go out of the world. I think that's a really important clarification of the call to action. There's a difference between people who are in the church and out of the church as far as how you're going to handle that. The last issue of the day, which is basically a category I call personal and corporate life choices. And I've kind of poured a whole bunch of little, little ones into that one category. These are all issues that, as you're looking at these issues, they need to be dealt with. There needs to be attention and given to them and choices made in response to them. And that all of them, we need to ask ourselves, and they need to ask themselves the question, whatever I choose to do in this situation, will this glorify God 
And will this remove an obstacle to someone being saved? So the first one we're going to look at is the area of service, right? That's a choice. Are we going to serve? And for this, Paul explains how he and Apollos are, have been serving. He writes, We're both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. And when we are slandered, we try to consolate. And he encourages them to imitate himself and Apollos. They had assessed that living this way, what we just read, they assessed that this is how God wanted them to live, to glorify him. And it must have glorified him because it must have taken down some obstacles to others knowing Christ. How, how else would the church have grown if it didn't have that effect? But this can be hard, right? Do you like being reviled by your family or a coworker or a classmate? I don't. Do you choose to bless when that happens? I can think of instances when I've received that kind of scornful and abusive language and I've chosen to bless. And as I think about those situations when I've made that choice, I can't think of one situation where the relationship got worse uh, for blessing that other person. Now, whether it helped to direct them to Christ, I can't say that exactly just yet if that's true, but I think it's a part of someone's journey. We need to choose to, to either, you know, do the opposite of what we're being, how we're being treated, like it's mentioned in this verse. Another area he spends quite a bit of time talking about has to do with marriage. And I think it could be summed up in this, and this can be applied outside of marriage too. He's like, basically, as you're looking at whether you're going to get married or not, you need to look at how can I follow God with the least distractions? How can I best listen to and obey the Lord's voice? And that's going to be different for different people. And so I really appreciate his, uh, he expresses his preferences, but... I appreciate his understanding that we have to sort that out with God ourselves. The third little mini issue he deals with are food sacrifice to idols. This was a real issue and a common practice um, at this time when Paul wrote the letter. And it might seem a little funny to us today because, I mean, we don't really run into, we probably don't run into that very often. But the, the takeaway, what he really wants them to take from it, is that we need to take care lest our liberty somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so I think we can apply that, that idea to a lot of other areas in our life. I feel like we have to be in constant conversation with God, like, okay, this topic is coming up at the water cooler at work, right? Or uh, with the kids at, in school or, or even around the table. Like, how can I... How do I, do I take this issue head on because I know that I'm right about this or that and I know this person is really just not seeing the way things really are. I mean, that might be what we're thinking, but is that really what, how God wants us to handle it at that time? He might want us to just chill out and wait for another opportunity. Uh, he may want us to speak then, but 
he does not, he reiterates the point, he does not want us to become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul also spends a lot of time talking about their, what their worship services looked like. And apparently it was becoming a real problem of just kind of chaos in their worship services. And uh, it's my understanding that a lot of these people who became believers there in Corinth were coming from a background where worship was just like anything goes, like loud, like disorder, screaming, craziness. But he says, let all things be done for edification, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. When I picture what some of this might have looked like, I think back to, if you all remember that passage where Elijah is going against the prophets of Baal, Jezebel's prophets, and they have this challenge of like, whose sacrifice is going to be consumed by fire. And it talks about how the prophets of Baal were like screaming and hurting themselves and yelling and doing all this to try to get their gods to respond. And I'm not sure if that's exactly what it looked like, but apparently there was a lot of disorder. And so Paul spends a lot of time encouraging them to take in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner and to do things that are going to build up the church, that are going to build people's faith and not be uh, a place of disorder. As again, as it says, it says, let all things be done for edification, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. The last little mini area as far as personal choices I want to talk about is his strong encouragement for them to commit themselves to the belief in the resurrection. He says, I delivered you of first importance what I also received, that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This section in in chapter 15 talks a lot about how all these facts about all these eyewitness accounts of over 500 people, it says over 500 people of whom said they saw Jesus resurrected, most of whom remain until now, meaning they were still alive when he wrote this letter. So somehow the central tenet of the faith was being questioned, and he implores them to hold fast to this truth. Of course, to glorify God, I mean, it's still an amazing thing today, even thousands of years later, that God resurrected Jesus. But also, I mean, why would anyone want to come to faith if that wasn't true? And so he implores them to hold on to that tightly. Now, you know there are um, there are segments uh, of this book that could stand alone, and indeed, I mean, who knows, we might even do some segment in the future, a study of really digging into First Corinthians. But um, I feel like, again, this idea of how can I glorify God, and how can I not get in the way, how can I help somebody to come to faith, is what he wants in all these different aspects. And I'm going to read a, a I'm going to read a passage here that, just to kind of close off. And I think what Paul is really pointing out in this is, uh, as I read it, think about this. He's, say, he's, he's saying, what Jesus has covered for those who believe, and at the same time, he's saying, this is what Jesus will judge, and those who don't believe. And so, just remember. We want to be a part of what God is doing. And if there are obstacles in someone's path, they can be overcome. 
We just don't want to make it harder. We want to help people to come to know the Lord. So I'm going to read this passage, and then I'd just like to pray after that. So Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Dear Lord, thank you so much that you sent Paul to coach the Corinthians and coach us. Lord, thank you for the reminders of, of your overall picture, Lord, that you wish to be glorified and you want to bring more people into your kingdom. Lord, thank you for all the ways that you have um, given us a standing that we just clearly don't deserve on our own. Thank you that you want to involve us in what you're doing in this, on, this, on this planet and the people in our time in history. Thank you for putting us at this time in history, Lord. Lord, I, I pray that we'd lift up to you ones that um, you have put close in our life. Um, that we would be a part of their story, that you would use us as a part of their story of salvation. And as we go forth this week, Lord, um, would you be glorified in all that we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.